You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Char Miller is the author of Natural Consequences, Intimate Essays for a Planet in Peril. Thank you for joining me, Char. Thank you, Rick. This is a, this will be fun. You know, one of the things that I absolutely loved about this book is you can put it right in the title, Essays. I, I love essays. It's a really great writing form, and I think you do it really well, and it's so great to see them collected in a book form like this. So let, let's start out at the basics. What inspires you to write an essay like one of the ones here? Now, obviously, some of these are, are for newspaper paper pieces, but I think anybody who writes an essay writes it from something deep within, and that's what I would like you to talk about. Yeah, so, so two things about essays, one of which is that's what I teach. Um, and, and as I remind my students, the French origin of the term is to try. And that actually gives them the freedom to write because they think that papers are a softer term. And I said, eh, you know, maybe. But essays really are these, um, in some cases, vignettes, somewhat longer pieces at different points that are efforts to try to come to terms with some project, some issue, some concern that I've had. Um, and um, as you also probably noticed, a lot of these involve walking. And so I, I, I do a lot of walking. I don't care where I am, um, but I, I see walking as a mechanism, recreational, of course, my heart loves it, um, but, but also to sort of think out ideas about places that I'm walking through. And so there are essays in here about various national forests and parks, um, essays about the town I live in, because that's the place I walk most, 10 to 12 miles a day if, I, if I'm lucky. Um, and, you know, like writing, walking is a way to introduce yourself to a place. And so that's part of my writing practice is, is to walk and presumably to think. It doesn't always work, uh, but presumably to think. But, you know, to go to your, your bigger picture, like, okay, but you could write essays about anything. Why is it about these things? And I think um, I, I retrospectively, which means I didn't think about this when I was a child, um, but in retrospect, I would go back and think about uh, uh, my childhood in New England um, and the forests that my friends and I played in that were filled with all of these um, abandoned farmhouses, that all that was left was the basement. And I'm standing around there looking, and there are second growth trees that have basically taken it over. And so I'm looking, in a sense, at a colonial landscape that has been reappropriated by nature. And then the subdivisions moved in on that landscape. And so, uh, you know, in retrospect, I can look at that and go, oh, well, yeah, of course, that's why you're an environmental historian. You started thinking about these things, which isn't true. Um, but, but there is something about walking on a beach, walking on a mountain, walking through a suburban street or, or New York City or, or, or Santa Cruz, where I was a student one summer, and realizing that all of these places um, are different from one another, they're ecosystems. And if you wanna get to understand it, you've gotta walk in those redwoods around Santa Cruz, you have, to, you have to 
um, think that Big Sur is a different kind of place than any other place, which it's true, um, and then try to figure that out. And so some of this is highly academic. Some of it is just fun. Um, and the joy for me is then trying to put fingers to a keyboard or pen to paper and, and sort of think my way through whatever it was I just saw, observed, and commented on. You know, the, the word that caught my attention there was, was resort to joy and fun. And yeah. that's because I think all of these are really fun to read. And that's because oh, we can sense your joy in yeah. writing them. Yeah. And, and one, it also struck me this description you gave of your the land of your childhood, originally sometime in the deep past, a forest. Then at some point, houses were built on that land. It was leveled or maybe just built within the trees. Then those houses were abandoned. The trees grew back, the forest grew over, and then it was built on yet again. And I think this brings to, to mind a very important point is that we like to think that the path, the future, or, or the present, as it were, that always replaces the past. Right. And by virtue of doing so, removes it. But that's not the case. The the present always grows on top of the past. And I think that's an important point to understand the landscapes in the way that you understand them. And also to understand the essays in this book because um, they are written in a present which has already been, to a certain extent, grown over. Right. But they inform the present deeply. So talk, talk about this process of the present not replacing the past, but rather growing over it. Yeah, that's a wonderful thought and, 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 and query. And it is part of what um, I tr I'm trying to do in the book, in a sense. And, and you know, at some level, it's so introspective uh, because I'm trying to figure out what these things are and what their historical antecedents look like. But let's start with the concept that the past and the present are somehow conjoined, which they are. The past is really sticky. It is not gone. It is here with us. And part of what historians do at some level, like an archaeologist, is you start excavating. You're trying to see where those, those roots are and how those roots inform. You know, you want to go to a tree metaphor. I mean, the roots of a tree, which are quite old, are really informing the canopy that lies above it, which could be quite new um, if it's, you know, a deciduous tree in, in that sense. So some of this is... is um, almost second nature, I think, to historians that we ask questions about the past that can help us understand that other time, knowing that I'm standing in something called the present. Um, but always that present is moving, as is the past, as is that future. So it gets very complicated. But, but I think part of what I've been doing is to think about that lovely way you describe the sort of growth, regrowth, change, evolution, um, and growth again as an integrated process. Um, and I wanna be part of that integration. I wanna see it, I wanna feel it. Um, and the interesting thing is that, that oftentimes you see this best when you go to a place you don't know because you, you don't just live there. You don't, it's not just default or normal. It's new, totally new. So if you walk down a street in Paris, you go, oh, all right, okay, this is old. This has got some relevance that I should be thinking about. Or, you know, you, you, you go to a 
place like Missoula, Montana or Boise, Idaho, and you suddenly realize, okay, this is not LA. And it, and it functions in very different ways. And, you know, get on your feet, walk out there and try to figure out what's going on. And then you see things that you would never have seen because you're kind of alert to it and you're alert to it because it's new, even though that past is still there, you know, in some way, um, trying to tease it out of buildings or streetscapes or forests um, is one of the one of the great pleasures of um, I don't know being alive and being alive to the fact that we live in a past present future conundrum that is related to each other and the, we don't repeat the past you know that that doesn't work as a concept but we can't escape it either I mean just think about our biographies. Like we were born of certain parents and a certain set of conditions, and those things have shaped us. Um, even if, in my case, we tried to flee to California to get away from some of that, and it's like that's ridiculous. You don't get away from stuff like that. Any therapist can tell you that. And so, an environmental historian is kind of a, a therapist at one level, which is like, okay, here's the world as we understand it, and let's try to figure out our place within it. There was a word that came to mind when you were describing yourself as walking through landscapes and thinking about them and <clears throat> interacting with them. And that word is flaneur. So, yeah, yeah, it's a great word. Love flaneur. So, so, so talk about, I think that really describes you in a single word uh, as even when you're just walking through a landscape and viewing that landscape, you are interacting with it. Right. You are giving something back unto it, even in those moments. So talk about being a flaneur here in the 21st century when such a thing seems almost quaint in a way. Well, it is quaint. Uh, first of all, it's a great <laughs> word. It's a word I learned from Henry David Thoreau, who talks about it in one of his walking essays, and it may be walking, actually. Um, and what I actually teach that essay, uh, probably we'll teach it next semester. And when I, one of the things I loved about his walking essays, as opposed to things like Walden, um, is that he, that he starts at a home place. He goes on a walk, however long it is, and however, you know, multiple days it might be out of his diary. And he returns to the place where he started. But he returns, as the essay will explain, with a different set of ideas than when he walked away. And so you, you have a hearth, you walk out from the hearth to someplace else and you come back warmed by the walk and the ideas that inform that walk. And I just loved that piece. Um, I'm not sure my students think about it quite the same way as you know, my enthusiasm bubbles up when I'm, I'm teaching it. Um, but but I, you know, if, if he's a model um, and a problematic one in his own way, <laughs> so am I. Um, and so, you know, part of it is also the, the way we think when we put heel and toe to ground. Um, and it's not just to get from a, point A to point B, it's what happens in between. So one of the things I do when I teach that, and I don't tell the students until they get into class and we're about to read it, I said, okay, I want you to take five minutes and write down everything you saw from the moment you left your dorm or from your dorm to this classroom. And it's a way to sculpt observation to sort of like, okay, use your memory. What did you see? What did you smell? 
Um, and, you know, did you chat with people? What was, what was the dynamic like as you moved across a landscape? And, you know, that's one of the things that the pandemic, for me at least, was um, I felt lucky because I was safe. But I also live in a town where I could walk every single day um, and do this. And a lot of these essays were crafted during that period. Um, and it's, and it, you know, the world changed pretty radically for the, at least the first four months of that pandemic. Um, and one of the essays is about that process of sort of discovering neighborhoods that I didn't know existed or paid no attention to. And all of a sudden, the, the sidewalks have art all over them. Kids have been out there chalking like crazy. Um, and I was taking photographs and, you know, doing all sorts of fun stuff as a result of that. But I think the flaneur notion is, is critical because it's also slow. It's a way to slow down in a world that is, you know, driven by whatever car one drives and, and sort of the aspirations. And I don't mean this to be the critique of the 21st century. I'm very much that person in that place. But it is for me a chance um, to get out of myself weirdly. Um, and 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 not move fast because you know you're walking at two to three miles an hour, maybe four if you're lucky, downhill. Um, and that's a pretty slow pace. And I love the pacing of it. And that's something that that you know at least is embedded in Thoreau um, and the way he conceived of a planeur. You're not going anywhere. You know and when you are. One of the interesting things you pointed out, and this is something that I experience because every morning I take the dogs for a walk. I mm -hmm. right down by the Monterey Bay. I walk like yeah. two miles. We walk to the end of the walkway and back. And one of the things I realize so often, I I don't even hardly sometimes I hardly don't remember what I see yeah. because yeah. I get so lost in my thoughts yeah. and I think yeah. that's one of the really interesting aspects these yeah. essays ca capture those lost thoughts and that's the really important part too because on one hand you you do need to think but then setting pen to paper setting your fingers to the keyboard that's a very important part of this whole process yeah. and capturing those thoughts because once they're captured they they become somewhat concrete but they also change from what they were and you're yeah. able to see them and see yourself in a whole new way right and, and i imagine that these essays strike you very differently now when you wrote them oh yeah totally yeah so that's i love i love that experience and I know the route you're walking. And so I, I, cause I, I love being up in Monterey and, and Pacific Grove and all those places and sort of just walking around, but I do get lost both physically and mentally. Um, and that's when I get lost, I get really interested. It's like, wait a second, what did I miss? How did I go whatever down streets? And, and I don't know where I am. Um, and I was thinking about that this morning where, cause I was on a normal walk about walking when I lived in San Antonio, and I used to get lost all the time, which tells you don't, don't have me in your car with a map. Um, but but um, it took me a while to figure out why I was getting lost because the streetscape was unlike any streetscape I'd ever been in. And partly that, as I sort of sussed it out, was that you had an 18th century streetscape that the Spanish had devised, and then an American grid that got put down on top of it. And that's a really unholy combination. <laughs> like it just, you get lost. And, and I, 
I, it took me a while to figure out that sort of past and a subsequent past that was built on top of it. Um, and when I went, figured, finally figured that one out, I was like, oh, I, I get this now. And I think similarly, um, getting lost is actually a really great way to get found. And, and, and the way of finding is sort of putting pen to paper um, afterwards and trying to reconstruct um, what I was thinking about when I zoned out. Um, and, you know, I, there are mornings when I come back to the house after walking six, seven miles, and I can't tell you what the route was. And I have to work hard to figure it out. It's like, wait a second, did I go by that place or this place? Um, and I love that out-of-body experience. Um, and as you say, some of the ways to sort of come back to the body is to, is to start making notes. Um, and one of the ways I do that actually is to get on my phone and call my office phone and talk to myself. Like, okay, here's a paragraph you might consider. Uh, so my office phone is really my brain. Now, that's an interesting form of writing. And I think that speaks to the import of the of the technology that one has to hand when one is writing because yeah. uh writing in a notebook is very different from typing on a notebook computer yeah um i had to, i had to take up typing early because my handwriting i mean in college because yeah. i found that i couldn't read my own writing ditto <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. so talk, talk about, you know, using, and also it's the way you express yourself when you're talking is very, very different from the way you express yourself when you're writing. Oh, that's and, interesting. And, and I think, too, that when you transcribe what you write, huh? what you said, it also undergoes another transformation. Even if you transcribe it accurately, it's... Uh, <laughs> there's an essay by Stanislaw Lamb where he talks about, he imagines that somebody has written Don Quixote word for word again and published the exact same book that was was written with the idea that because he had written, the author had written it hundreds of years later, it was an entirely different book. Right, right, right. I love that. And actually, it's, it's, um, it's intriguing because I, I, I think part of the transformation is that Talking takes you to a certain place in writing, and then you put you start to lay those words out, and you begin to realize that, and it's not just ums and ands and things like that that you might impose because that's what we do verbally, but it's also like that may not be the right word. Interesting idea, but the wrong word. So let's play with the words in here, and also play with the tempo and the tone of them. Um, and I couldn't do that on a telephone. On a cell phone, sort of just quickly throwing ideas out, and sometimes it's almost telegraphic. Like, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this, and then if I do remember, um, which may be a problem, um, I, I then start to sculpt, you know, massage the words in a way that I think will play more vividly on the page. But as I tell my students, two two things about that: I don't know what I think until I see it on a screen. I have ideas, but I don't know which of those ideas I actually believe in, at least at that moment. Um, and they think that's pretty funny. But I said, you know, because part of it is when you take it from verbal to um, um, written word, 
you are starting to um, reduce it to some set of symbols and signs that are also sonic audio. And, and you want to hear it in a way, um, which I do when I write, that when any essay is done, I read it out loud multiple times to see if it flows. And that's a trick I learned from Mark Twain. I didn't know him, not that old. Um, but one of the things he talks about with Huck Finn is that he would take it downstairs, read it out loud to his children. And if they didn't get it, it wasn't their fault, it was his. And he'd go back up into his you know, writing chamber and rewrite it so that the audience understood what he was trying to say. And you know, that's one of the things I work with my students on is like, look, find somebody who's willing to listen to you. Um, and you know, it could be a parent, it could be a roommate, whatever, and just read it out loud. And if they go, hmm, that's when you need to go back into that text and rework it. Um, and the other thing is that, that um, and you, you mentioned this earlier, that these essays are already passed. In fact, I've already, you know, I had a chance to rewrite one of them for Counterpunch recently. I completely rewrote it. So the book is already out of date at some level because I had a whole new way of thinking about the thing that I wrote, um, you know, a year ago. Um, but that's part of it is that that you see things at different times that that you go, yeah, I don't know about that paragraph. Um, and maybe it could have a better introduction or maybe the conclusion needs to be strengthened um, because writing is not just an essay as trying. It's also retrying constantly revising. Well, one of the things about the this book made me think, um, one time when I was talking with Cory Doctorow about the genre of science fiction, yeah. he said, we're not trying, we're not predicting the future, we're predicting the present. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's yeah. absolutely true here. And that's one of the things that's very interesting about this book is that as I, I read these essays that are clearly written, you know, rooted in a very specific time and place. Yes. I thought, my God, this this guy really understood where we were going before we got there. And I think that's one of the, one of the virtues of a, uh, and the essay form is that you demonstrate in each of these, your understanding of where we are in the moment. And as we read that and see that, we see, oh my God, I can guess now how we got where we were yeah. today. Well, that's a that's a lovely um, compliment, and I'm I'm going to emblaze it on I don't know my bulletin board, um, but but uh, that's sort of that's part of what I'm trying to do. I mean, historians don't make really good futurologists because like our head is like focused in a different direction often. Um, but I actually think we've got an obligation um, as as sentient beings, as people who have platforms. Uh, that are available to us that aren't available to other people um, and with skills that maybe we have in, in different ways than other writers might have is to not just explain the past to some present, um, but to help me and others understand how that happened and also what that sets up. Um, and so because I'm now teaching both in a history department and in a program called environmental analysis at Pomona College, um, that has also led me to um, thinking about policy as policy 
and what it is that history can help us understand about the making of, let's say, water policy in the state of California, which is a really complicated thing to be sure. Um, but what earlier generations decided with the State Water Project or the LA Aqueduct or the Colorado River Aqueduct flows that moved from very different places into Southern California, those decisions have enormous impact all over the place. Um, and we're now seeing that um, mega droughts on the one hand and um, water supply shrinking on the other, that, <laughs> that we might need to be thinking about what's the next direction. And one of the ways that, that I've been working with my students and talking locally about as an example, is that, that, that at that time in the early 20th century, when LA went after Eastern Sierra water, the LA aqueduct, the local people in Claremont, California, and in the Ontario Plain and Pomona Valley thought about their geology in a very different way than the city of LA did, and still doesn't think much about, which is we rely, we rely on water from the ground. It comes off of the San Gabriel Mountains, the San Bernardino Mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains, and we live in alluvial fans. And these citrus growers and the community of, 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 that grew up around those citrus groves recognized that if you protected the watersheds and you protected open space across which water would flow coming out of these canyons, you'd actually save yourself. And so they protected that landscape up until the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, when they changed that dynamic and, and, and suddenly sort of stopped geology from working or ge geography at a, at a level uh, from working. Um, but I love that idea. And the transposition of that idea is for the college for whom I work and others in this community um, have started punching holes in the concrete, trying to replicate those natural systems so that when water sheets off a dormitory, it goes into the alluvial soil and it goes right into the aquifer. We don't benefit from that, but the larger society does and the larger geology does. Um, and so groundwater, protecting groundwater turns out to be really important. Okay, so that's very small scale. A college can do that. Uh, how we retrofit LA County, which is 80% paved, is a bigger deal. Um, but the technology is there. There's ways of doing this. And I, you know, in, in ways that I wrote about floods and flood control in San Antonio, they got whacked all the time by monster floods. Uh, and it lived in a climate of denial for a long time. Um, I learned how policy is predicated on past actions or inactions. And I thought, well, that's true for fire in California. It's true for water management in California. It's true in drought resilience, if that's what we can get in this state and across the West. It's like, oh, this is fun. I mean, another way to think about it is that, you know, the joke about California is, is, is um, it's 90% paradise and 10% apocalypse. I think the percentages are shifting and not in a good way. Um, uh, yeah. And so that gives me a lot to write about. You know, you suggested that historians don't make good futurologists, but I, I would say that by demonstrating the relationship between the the present and the past, you also demonstrate the exact same relationship between, between the past and the future and the present and the future. And one of the things, when you were talking about California water, water policy, which you talk about 
extensively in this book and really well and in a very interesting way is that it's not so as much the present that's influencing the future of California's right. water as it is right. these totally events right. buried deep in the past that most yep. of us don't have no boo about. And yeah. that's what's really, you know, coming to the, the hammer point now with the Colorado River disaster. And it is yeah. a disaster. There's no, yeah. no two ways about it. It's got to be a disaster when Lake Powell is, you know, coughing up bodies every three weeks. Right, right. Right. No. And that's and that's um, um, I actually our, our son, who has been involved in environmental issues, he was a chief of staff for Jared Huffman uh, in, uh, in the northern California district and for George Miller has really shown me sort of the, the way to think about water issues in this state um, are so wedded to 19th century legal prescriptions for how water could be distributed that you know, we are at a crisis point, not just with the Colorado, but with the state water project and who has rights to water in this state and why it is that agriculture uses 80% of the water and the rest of us use 20%, but it's the rest of us using 20% who are told to conserve and ag is not. So that tells you something about the power differential between these massive urban areas on the one hand and big ag and the Salinas and, and Central and Sacramento Valleys on the other. But, you know, one of the I have a, a bunch of colleagues in Australia who've been working on these water issues in that very arid landscape. And our legal prescription known as first in time, first in right, prior appropriation, the earlier you get on the ground, the more rights you have to the water that flows across it or underneath it, uh, which drives California's legal system and also the distribution of water here was the same set of laws in Australia. And after a mega drought, they stopped doing that. It's like, okay, we know some place has done this and it's equally a Mediterranean ecosystem that did it. Um, you know, we, that's the goal, right? So we know the past has driven the way in which water is conceived of in this state. Um, and just recently, the, the courts have, have, have agreed that prior appropriation is still the law of the land, which means irrigators and wherever uh, the earlier rights they have, senior water rights, determine the flow here. But we can't, it's a suicide pact. It's going to destroy this state and many others like it. You know, I, I really loved how much this book was about California. Yeah. I, I was happy to see it. I, I'm guessing it will be the only book that I ever read that mentions the town I came from so long ago, Covina. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Good. Glad I got you in there. <laughs> so talk about, you know, you've lived many places. Talk about your relationship with California and how it inspires these essays. Just the place itself, I mean, inspires these essays, which are so much about it and capture so many really fascinating details of the debates and the politics and the way the humans who swarm across this landscape like ants, you know, affect that landscape. Yeah, I, you know, so some of this is about, um, and to go back to biography, I um, came to Southern California to go to school at Pitzer College in Claremont, where I now live and teach. Um, and I drove across the country in a 1956 Volkswagen, which broke down in Bridgeport, California, which is in the high desert of, of the Eastern Sierra. 
and hitchhiked. Can't believe I did this. Hitchhiked from there to Claremont, California, and I got picked up by a, an eighteen-wheeler, uh, short in in Bridgeport, um, who then took me all the way down three ninety-five, looped through Cajon Pass, and then onto the ten, and got off at exit forty-seven for uh, Claremont. And the whole trip down, I'm seeing things I've never seen before. I mean, I've been to California before to visit family. Uh, but never had been to the Eastern Sierra, never had driven an 18-wheeler, um, and never had a garrulous truck driver start talking to me about what in his very large windshield I was looking at. And so, you know, effectively, we were talking about water issues, which I had no idea of, even though I'm going through a desert and I might have paid more attention to that. Um, so I absolutely fell in love with the Eastern Sierra at that moment, because on your right, as you're rolling down, there's the green... Uh, Sierra Mountains, and on your left are the White Mountains, which are as arid as possible. You know, they're living in the rain shadow. And so here are the dramatic contrasts in one special place uh, of the state. And then we come around the Cajon Pass and into San Bernardino um, and head east, head west. Um, and it is endless sprawl and choked with smog so much so that you couldn't see the San Gabriel Mountains most of the time in Claremont or anywhere in Southern California. <laughs> Holy shit, what, what did I just do? Um, but I was transfixed. It was like, I got here and it was like, okay, this is California and this is where you go to remake yourself, which was important to me like many others in the 1970s. Um, so what is this gonna be? And how is this gonna work? And I went to a college that was highly experimental, not unlike UC Santa Cruz at the time. Um, that was trying to think out different ways to educate people and, and, and uh, sort of exist as a college unlike others. I felt very lucky to be there. I felt le very lucky to have people who were, I think, brilliant teachers um, and who told me to read. Who I, okay, I can do that. But part of it was reading the land. And, um, you know, we would go up to Mount Baldy, which is a 10,000 foot mountain, which you barely could ever see because of the smog. But once you started hiking it, you realized you could pop above it, stand on the top of it and hear Cajon Pass traffic. And that's 20, 30 miles away and, 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 and more than that. Um, and suddenly the world seemed both small and big at the same moment. Um, and I felt I, I was totally... Um, uh, amazed by Southern California. Um, my wife who grew up in Berkeley, you know, we would travel up there a lot um, as undergrads and it's <laughs> like, oh my God, there is a big world in this state. Um, and so some of it, you know, in retrospect, again, I would say, oh yeah, these were transformative experiences, but I actually felt that way, that I was in a place that really was experimental and that I was part of the experiment. Um, loved every moment of it. And so um, the East where I grew up seemed pretty tame because they don't have 10,000 foot mountains. Um, they don't have the Eastern Sierra. They do not have the Pacific Ocean. We got nice oceans, but you know, it's nothing like the Pacific. Um, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, I spent a summer uh, studying French at Santa Cruz and just wigged out. Uh, those redwood forests just blew my mind, as did the library at the university. Um, and to be able to play soccer uh, on a French-speaking team overlooking the Pacific Ocean, I mean, that was heaven. That was totally heaven. So I, the, my wife had had this conversation in our senior year of college. It was like, yeah, we got to figure out how to come back here. It took us 30 years. Um, but 
but I think the the return the 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 things that I've been able to write in Natural Consequences are a result of the other experience I had in San Antonio and teaching at the University of Miami in Florida, now underwater uh, today, um, that I would not, I think, have had had I not had those experiences. But this is also, as you say, a very California book, even though it darts over to different places at various points, um, in part because of that early adoration of a state that baffled me. Um, and the book is really about trying to become unbaffled, if that's a word. You, you know, one of the <clears throat> things you say in this book, and, and I'm paraphrasing it, it, you talk about humanity likes to think of itself as separate from nature. Yeah. But it's not. When, when I look at our cities, I don't necessarily see something that's all human. What I see is the human version of termite mounds. <laughs> and I think that that's really important to remember that we are all a part of this planet and that everything we make is part of this planet and part of the landscape. And you think about that all the time and that's I think one of the ideas that in a sense informs a, a lot of the writing I find in this book whether you're looking at water rights or wildfires you know all the things that that we do are not a part of us they're a part of nature right and that's a that used to be a a, a big argument inside my environmental historian circles about about um, that interplay between the human system and the natural system and and whether there's a place actually called the wilderness um, which is really a, a construct I mean wilderness doesn't know it's wilderness we just gave it the name that it's wilderness right so there's there's all that <clears throat> some of its linguistic play but I think ultimately a lot of it is crucial and so, um, for me, living here or in San Antonio or anywhere I've lived, part of what I've been trying to do is to think about the interactions between what we call human and natural systems that are actually quite integrated, um, hybrid in a sense, but also um, depend on one another. So, you know, trying to think that through um, has, has been really fun and it's easier in a way to do it in a city, which is counterintuitive. Um, but I've been working with a good friend and colleague, Tilly Hinton, on a series of projects about the Los Angeles River. And we have a photographic exhibit up now at the library, the Central Library of the Los Angeles Public Library System. Um, and, and the title of it is, is, is it really a river? Um, which, you know, raises a question. I actually think the, what we should have done was to assert, not to question. It is a river. Every black neck stilt that feeds in there doesn't know it's a concrete flood channel. It knows it's a source of food. And there's that kind of juxtaposition that I find really intriguing. And, you know, the book opens with this moment of me coming out of my office in the midst of the pandemic, seeing what I thought was a feral cat and immediately recognizing, but not quite fast enough that, no, that's a bobcat. That's not a kitty cat. Um, and so A, stupid. B, I was tired. And C, wow, there's a bobcat on my campus. The students have gone and the animals have come back in. And I was telling the class the other day, we did this thing about 
sort of animals, whether charismatic or otherwise, that um, sort of help help them individually think about the world. And it's so interesting that they were picking termites and ants and other species that are colonizers that sort of are work collaboratively with one another. Nobody picked, you know, a, a, a grizzly bear or something like that. And my contribution to that conversation was walking along uh, during the pandemic, looking over at the college's track and its infield, and there were about 20 to 30 Canada geese there just honking like crazy. That was their space. And it was like, okay, nature has returned. Whatever nature is, it has totally returned uh, because we've stepped back. Um, and, and to see coyotes every single morning when I'm walking is to know, yeah, this isn't really my landscape, or it is my landscape and their landscape, and we have to figure out how to cohabitate. Uh, which is the same issue we have to do with fire. We have to figure out how to live with it as opposed to simply suppressing it because that's not possible. Um, and so these are challenges that we face. And part of it is um, the words we use to describe something then shape our policies and reactions to it. So we fight fire, all the sort of military language that comes up, uh, you know, airdrops like bombing runs um, and, and sort of the militaristic language. Um, is intended to help us understand that we are going to stop this thing which we can't actually control that way. Um, and so some of the book is going back to indigenous fire management uh, techniques, which isn't back, they're still doing it, um, and suggesting that there are ways in which other people have lived in this landscape and quite happily so. Uh, and we might want to pay attention to that past, which is also our present. You know, uh, I thought you wrote well about uh the the problems with fire and, and wildfire and also too as i read that i thought my god this guy was living like you know about a year and a half in the future <laughs> and, <laughs> as he wrote about this and what struck me was how important as much as the technology and the water and the guys standing in there with shovels are and fighting fire, what's most important in fighting fire is what you were slinging at the time, which is words. Words create the policies, and policies are what drive fires, lack thereof, destruction thereof. So talk about, as a writer, you're out there doing work that is arguably as or more important as the guys flying those planes, dumping water, doing the bombing runs, which is a, a great observation that I had never seen before. Yeah, I, you know, on the one hand, um, if I were to live in a foothill, I'd want those guys come screaming overhead with, with fire retardant. Um, but as one of the essays points out, that that's such a bad policy. And not just that, it's like, why is that house in a high severity fire zone? Like some zoning commission has agreed to that. And so some of this is um, locally derived. We have a debate going on in Claremont currently about a potentially um, massive, very expensive subdivision built in a high severity fire zone, which is served by a single lane road that no fire truck can get up and no car can get down simultaneously, which is, you know, okay, um, give people tow tags, um, which I think is such bad policy. But some of it is, is therefore, and I love the way you formulated it, is, is, okay, let's say that's a bad thing. So where and how does one intervene? And, and for me, the intervention is with words, counter words, a counter narrative, trying to figure out what that counter narrative 
um, would look like, sound like, um, how it would be received, who would be reading it, which is why some of these essays began and have all been revised, but they began in small town newspapers because that's a way for me to talk to zoning and planning commissions. I can go to those meetings, which I did, but during the pandemic did not. Um, but I can also speak to them through newspapers that they read um, and community, and that could be the LA Times, it could be the Claremont Courier, um, it could be a regional newspaper. It doesn't really matter to me where it goes. I can get on um, KPCC, which is one of the great um, public radio stations in Southern California and do a thing on there. Um, the goal is trying to figure out how to get the ideas out there. Uh, and I'm very fortunate that, that um, there are spaces that are open to me to do that. As I said earlier, I've got a platform that um, I'm privileged to have um, and would be stupid not to use because I think, not because I think my ideas are brilliant, but because I think I want them in play. And, you know, people can reject them, which is all good. Um, but, but I think I want people to reject something that they've heard as opposed to rejecting it and they've never known it. One of the things about seeing essays like this collected in together in form is just our ability to see your ideas evolve, mm -hmm. change, and yeah. build on one another. And sometimes you might completely change your mind. And I think this is very important. This is the thing that distinguishes humans is our idea is our ability to change our minds that's mm -hmm. currently seen as being being able to see the change in people's minds changing your mind it, that's important and it because the facts change their world change our understanding of facts change saint augustine wrote in his confessions back in the way way before time that what he was saying, suggesting that the modes and morals he was suggesting were informed by the science of his time and that we were given minds that allowed us to discover new facts and come to new conclusions. And that's something that science does. Yes. Science, it's not finding itself wrong. The idea of science is to refine our understanding. And I think that seeing you refine your understanding in these essays is important. And also it's important to read that as a reading experience. Yeah. We yeah. I, I, you know, I puzzle myself all the time. It's like, I wrote that? No, I'm not <laughs> sure. I think that's true any longer. And it's partly because I've read something else or said of something else's that, that sort of uh, tweak me. Um, and I don't mean they know about my work, but but sort of raise ideas that I had not considered. Um, I would argue that that it's also been hugely important to me to be reading for the last 40 plus years, um, student essay after student essay after student essay, where they are grappling with some of these concerns because they're in my classes um, and they come to conclusions that I would never have thought of. And, you know, there are a couple of essays where, where I am using, working with students and actually in one case wrote with a student um, an essay that it came out of their senior thesis or one of their seminar papers. And I went, okay, this is a really smart idea. We need to do something more with this. Um, and, and I credit them completely for sort of helping me see things I would not have seen or thought. Um, and I, I, I like the way you've described that evolutionary process, because I should not be writing 
in 2022, the way I wrote and about the things I wrote 10 years earlier. Um, there, there's got to be more evidence out there that I've encountered and that has helped me better understand it. And that's true for the writing process itself. I had a, an amazing conversation with historian Willie Lee Rose um, in 1976, when I was a student at Johns Hopkins University, and I had just submitted some seminar paper to her. I don't remember the context of the, of the conversation, except that she was about to critique what I wrote. And I was more worried about that than anything I had said. And she said, you're a good writer, but you'll be a better writer at 50. I went, wait a second. Are you telling me I got to wait until 50 to be better at what I'm doing? which was actually a humbling moment, which was great. And she could see that in my face. I didn't say anything, but she saw it in my face. She said, I wanna, I wanna help you understand this. She said, my husband, who is a brilliant photographer, and he was, um, Bill Rose, a phenomenal photographer, was teaching himself how to build chairs. And she said, his first 10 chairs couldn't sit in them. It took him years of the craft to be able to make a chair a chair. And she said, writing is a craft. You got to do it every day. You have to go through this process of a muscle memory and get, get, get sort of engaged with the writing process, regardless of what you're doing. Um, and so when I got to 50, I thought, yeah, she may have been too early, maybe 60. Um, and now that I'm in my 70s, it's like, mm, you know, but, but it's, it, it, if, if the craft of writing evolves, part of the craft is embedded in the words that you choose and the ideas that you uh, approach and the context in which they are then set. And I've been very lucky to move around the country and be in other places and start to write about those places, which are not Southern California or the Bay Area or wherever. And I think, you know, investing yourself in a community is one of the ways by which you become a citizen. And it's not just about voting rights. It's about engaging with the issues that confront that community. And as a writer, part of the way you, I do that anyway is not only the walking piece, but also the writing piece. Um, and I think it has made me a better writer to be committed to the process of thinking about the words that go on a page and the issues that are actually alive in my community, wherever that may be, um, and joining the public conversation. You know, one of the things that humans do that no other species do that I as to my understanding at least is politics mm. and so I'd like you to talk about the interplay between the purely human uh, part uh, sport of politics and the human interaction with the natural world which is you live in that space uh, so talk about using writing to help transform, you know, to inform the politics so that the transformations that humans in turn are wrought upon the landscape around them are less tragic. Well, yeah, that's good luck with that. Um, but, you know, if you look at the cover of the book, and I urge readers to do so, you know, it, it's of a fiery scene with smoke and yet butterflies, right? So there's this conversation that's going on even on the cover that I think is emblematic of, of some of the tension inside the book, um, which is, and again, it could be fire, it could be water, it could be um, uh, land management on the one hand, thinking about the national forests. Uh, it could be about decisions that cities are making about where to build and how to build and why they're going to build the way they are. And um, 
it's it i it would be irresponsible of me at least as i understand myself to not write about politics because politics is as you say partly a game but also the means by which we make decisions it is a kind of decision space uh, that's a, at once about policy but also about um uh, sensibility, like what kind of town do I want to live in? What does this city look like? Uh, how could it be better? And so the work on the LA River, uh, for example, starts with a class I teach on water in the West. And one of our field trips is to the LA River. And part of that field trip is my students and I walk in it. And I have multiple reasons for doing it. First of all, it's a, it's a blast to do with the inter, Interstate 5 flying overhead. You can walk under that bridge and not hear those cars. And that's kind of magical. You can walk in the water itself and know that you're in a space that's unlike any other. Um, and it's also baptismal. And I'm telling them that. Like, you're going to get wet. Your feet are going to be wet. And you're going to come out of this experience possibly understanding that an urban river that looks like an inverted freeway is actually a river. And the moment that happens, or at least in my head at least, uh, the moment that happens, what begins to change is how you conceive of that space. So then the question is, how do you take that insight and then turn it into a conversation that's political? And one of the ways I've done it in the book um, is to talk about watersheds. Watersheds that we don't see because our water can come from the state water supply or from Colorado River, or from the LA aqueduct. Um, or wherever it comes from, it's a tap and it, you know, it flows out of the tap. But if you start to imagine that you live within a watershed, whether it's the LA River, the Sacramento River, the Feather River, um, the Santa Clara, or in my area, the Santa Ana River, um, it comes from somewhere. And so to think about the apex of that watershed, in my case, Mount Baldy, 10,050 feet, um, which drains through what's called the Santa, Santa, San Antonio Canyon, is to understand that there's a relation between upstream and downstream. And that's as true in the Colorado, right? It's, it's coming from some set of places. Um, it flows through seven states and it ultimately, if it could reach to the Gulf of Mexico, it would do so, but, but rarely uh, in more modern times has done it. But if you don't think about top to bottom, if you don't think about this system in which we are in, invested, but also um, integrated within, then we're never gonna change the way we think about ourselves in that place. And so it could be a tiny little creek like the San Antonio Creek, which is part of where I live, or it could be the Colorado River. It could be um, the Columbia for goodness sakes. Um, but, but the moment you do that, you begin to recognize that there's a way in which our politics is radically different than the watersheds we live within. And so to call the question on that is to actually ask people to think outside a box that they've placed themselves in and an isolation chamber from the landscape that is actually benefiting them without their knowledge. So when my students and I slop around in the, in the, in the flow of that water, um, that's, that immersion, not full body, but foot-wise anyway, is an effort to start that dialogue. And then they have to write essays about it. And out of their essays come these really interesting, like, that's not like a river. I grew up near Colorado, but maybe I need to think about that river differently, too. And it's like, ah, bingo. 
Um, and it's at those moments, those aha moments for them and for me, because they're, they're schooling me as we do this, um, is the source of a lot of the work about water in particular and watersheds in general. The new book by Char Miller is Natural Consequences. Thank you for joining me, Char. This has been a blast. It's been a total blast. I really appreciate it for the conversation, but more to the point to your wonderful questions. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.